0: Welcome, friends. It's James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. It's the 21st of April, 2014. And today we're joined from uh, Tokyo in live in the flesh by Roger Ver, who is, uh, well, he should be familiar to a lot of people by now. He's a proponent of Bitcoin and he's definitely made the media rounds talking about Bitcoin. And uh, Roger, what's the, uh, what's the best website for people
1: to reach you on? Uh, Rogerveer.com, R-O-G-E-R-V-E-R. Dot com. Excellent. Well,
0: it is your first time on CorbettReport.com. So, let's talk a little bit about yourself and your background. Uh, who are you? Where did you come from? Why are you here?
1: Yeah, uh, I was born and raised in uh, Silicon Valley, California. Um, been in Tokyo for eight years next month. Um, I've been involved in Bitcoin related things over three years now. Um, I started a previous business and uh, about 15 years ago when I found Bitcoin. I poured all the resources that I had accumulated from my previous business into Bitcoin and Bitcoin-related startups and have invested in over a dozen different Bitcoin startups now and been working on Bitcoin things full-time for over three years. So
0: definitely you got into Bitcoin mania in a big way. But uh, but as you say, you're from Silicon Valley, so I guess it's in your blood to just be involved with uh, with computers and technology. Um, how much did that influence your, uh, your reception of Bitcoin when you first
1: came across it? Uh, it allowed me to understand that Bitcoin wasn't something that was just gonna be shut down or, or smashed by governments. Uh, previously, I had been a user and a fan of a, a company called eGold. And uh, unfortunately, like lots of other eGold users, we had uh, you know our accounts frozen or basically seized by the US government. And I think just now, maybe some people are starting to get a little bit of their money back from that, but it's been who knows how many years since they froze it now. Um, and we're, whereas when I found Bitcoin, I realized that, oh, this same sort of problem can't happen with Bitcoin. This is why Bitcoin is much, much, much better than Eagle or PayPal or, or traditional bank account.
0: All right, well, we talked a little bit before this interview talking about kind of your, your philosophical background and approach to Bitcoin. And uh, I guess that comes broadly under the rubric of voluntarism, but you've s- spoken specifically about von Mises and Rothbard. Tell us a little bit about the, the philosophy that, uh, that got you in, interested in these types of issues.
1: Yeah, um, it actually started out maybe late junior high, or maybe maybe freshman year in high school. Um, I was bored one day at, at home and looked on the bookshelf and saw a book called Socialism by Ludwig von Mises on the bookshelf, and at that point I had no idea who von Mises was, um, didn't know much about socialism or capitalism, but kind of had this vague understanding that Americans are supposed to be against socialism, but I figured I should at least understand what the other side has to say about the topic. So I figured, oh, I'll, I'll read this book since I didn't have anything else to do at the time and, uh, started reading the book and it turned out, uh, the book was actually referred to as, uh, Ludwig von Mises's devastating critique of socialism. And in this book, basically it explains why, uh, prices are so incredibly important. And in a command economy, you have no idea what resources should be allocated to produce what goods and so even you know during the the height of the Soviet Union they had to look to the West and to see what resources were being used to produce what goods because without a pricing mechanism you don't know if the you have no idea if the street should be paved with asphalt or gold because there's the prices transmit the information as to what resources should be used to produce what goods and uh, after reading that book I realized oh wow yeah if you want to have uh, you know, people producing things to produce the greatest amount of material wealth for people, you have to have a pricing mechanism and the free market does a much, the free market is what you need in order to do that sort of thing. And from there, it just led from one book to another, to another. And I found Henry Hazlitt and uh, eventually I made my way to to Murray Rothbard that kind of made the other ones seem like, you know, tame Democrats or Republicans compared to Murray Rothbard. And I remember reading, you know, books by Murray Rothbard and holding physically, you know, this is back before, you know, Kindle or, or, or that eBooks or that sort of thing. And I was physically holding the book in my hand and Murray Rothbard was pointing out that the military draft is the moral equivalent of kidnapping and slavery. And up to that point, you know, all my teachers in school and all the adults around me just he kind of seemed like, yeah, of course, if there's a war, we need to draft people to fight in it. And when Murray Rothbard explained that, the draft is the same thing as kidnapping people and enslaving them. And I thought about the logic behind that and I realized that it's irrefutable. The draft is the moral equivalent of kidnapping and slavery. And it dawned on me that if kidnapping is wrong and slavery is wrong, why would anybody ever support any sort of group of people that claim that it's okay to kidnap and enslave people. And while lots of those people are enslaved, they wind up getting killed. So you can make the argument that not only is it kidnapping, it's slavery and then it's murder of the slaves as well. Why would anybody support any institution ever that, that wants to kidnap, enslave, and murder these people? And if you think about it, the U.S. government numerous times in its history has kidnapped and enslaved people in the form of the draft. Lots of countries today are still doing the exact same thing. South Korea, Israel, all sorts of other countries around the world have this mandatory military service. That's kidnapping and slavery. Granted it's only for a limited time, but sure, I don't want to be kidnapped for just a few years. It's not as bad as my entire life, but I don't think anybody wants to be kidnapped or enslaved. And yeah, North Korea is a lot worse than, uh, than South Korea, the, the people calling themselves the governments there. but. Kidnapping and enslaving anybody for any period of time is wrong. So why would I support the South Korean government or the North Korean government? I want nothing to do with any group of people anywhere in the entire world that thinks that it's okay to kidnap and enslave others. And that was kind of the real turning point in my view of the world and what governments are and what they're all about. And after that, I realized I can't support them with anything they do. And then Murray Rothbard pointed out that taxation is also it's the moral equivalent of theft. If you're telling somebody you're gonna pay money for something that you don't necessarily want to pay for, and if you don't pay for it, we're gonna lock you in a cage, and if you resist going to that cage, we're gonna send men with guns to your house to put you in that cage, and if you resist the men with guns, ultimately we'll kill you over it. I can't support anybody that thinks that that sort of thing is okay. I can't support any politician or any bureaucrat or any government official that thinks that it's okay to issue death threats to anybody, even if what you're going to use the money for is to feed starving children in Ethiopia, you should ask people, hey, maybe you should donate some money to do that, rather than ha- threaten them with guns, saying you're going to pay to help those kids. Um, and once once your bubble is popped as to how you see the rest of the world, there's there's no turning back. And uh, you know, here I am today. I, I don't have any qualms about saying I don't support any state anywhere on the entire planet. I think all human interaction should be on a voluntary basis and that's how almost everybody lives their day to day life with their day to day interaction with other people Uh, and for some reason they get confused and make this exception for when it comes to government it's okay to threaten people with violence but for every other business in the planet they only ask their customers to to buy their product but governments say you must buy our product and if you don't we're going to kill you and that's not okay and that's why I like to consider myself a volunteerist today.
0: Well, that's that's a pretty powerful story, and I think it's one that people who are are voluntarists can relate to. I think everyone has that bubble pop moment or the coin drop moment or whatever you you want to frame it, um, where... The argument that you may have heard before, but you've never really considered, you suddenly consider in a new light and it just becomes so apparent to you, you can't believe you didn't see it before. What do you think makes for that 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 m- moment or that changeover? Some people react to that and some people really uh, take it on. Other people will just never allow that type of argument to, to sink in.
1: Yeah, I, I think for me, to be honest, it was studying the, the economic side of things and the utilitarian argument. So like mo- anybody who's read von Mises, m- his arguments are from the utilitarian side and the utilitarian arguments in favor of of the free market are incredibly strong. And, and, And in practice as well, it's very clear in East Germany versus West Germany, you have the same, you know, ethnic culture, the same, you know, natural resources and just two different forms of government. In West Germany, before the wall came down, you had them producing, you know, BMWs and Mercedes and Porsches, and people had a very good standard of living in East Germany you have nothing except for a big giant wall that's been built to prevent people from escaping because things are so horrible there. So in theory and in practice, the free market leads to a higher standard of living. And I read all these utilitarian arguments in favor of freedom and and was really, really thoroughly convinced by them. And once I had been convinced on the utilitarian arguments, it wasn't until that had happened that the moral arguments in favor of freedom just seemed so much more powerful and so much clearer for me. And I think... It's, it just makes you feel so much more convinced when you see that the moral and the practical line up and are just almost perfectly in sync with what's practical and what's moral are right there and lead to the best outcome in just about every situation, just about every time, and it makes you just feel so much more confident advocating those things when you can understand the utilitarian arguments are perfectly in line with, with, with the moral arguments in almost every instance. Uh, and for me, I think I had to understand the utilitarian and the economic arguments in favor of freedom before I could fully appreciate the moral arguments. And today, the moral arguments speak so much more powerfully to me. I Don't use violence on peaceful people. That shouldn't be something that's very difficult to understand. If there's somebody that you want to do something, ask them to do that. Don't point a gun at them and tell them that you're going to lock them in a cage if they don't do it. I mean, that should just be common sense to just about everybody. And we shouldn't make exceptions to that rule when it comes to groups of people wearing costumes and badges calling themselves a state.
0: But most people use the, it's human nature. Uh, Humans can't be relied on to to police themselves or or that type of thing. We need that type of central authority.
1: What what do you say to that? If human beings can't be trusted, uh, all the more reason not to centralize that sort of power in human beings organized into an entity calling themselves the state. In the last century alone, groups of human beings, just like you and I, who organized themselves into states, murdered hundreds of millions of people. Let that think sink into your mind. How many people live in the, the town that you live in? Governments murdered hundreds of millions of people. If you live in a big town, maybe one million people, maybe a few million people live in the town you live in. Governments murdered hundreds of millions of people. That's not counting wars, that's counting Jews that they rounded up and sent off to the concentration camps, Chinese that they executed, Cambodians that they executed, Vietnamese that they executed, Native Americans, right? The United States government's not innocent either, right? They exterminated Native Americans because it was convenient for them to do that. And all over the world, normal human beings who organized themselves into entities called states, claim the authority to murder innocent human beings. I want absolutely nothing to do with that, and uh, in my ideal future world, no individual will have authority over under other individuals to execute them simply because they're not obeying their arbitrary commands to give up their money or to work for some something or other. Uh, to me, it's just absolutely appalling that that's happened. And. Uh, Every human being that supported any of those states should be absolutely ashamed. And the US government, even right now today, they're dropping bombs on innocent people all over the world. Anybody that's in front of their computer right now, spend a moment and go over to YouTube and Google Madeline Albright Iraqi children. And there's an interview with her on 60 Minutes where uh, the interviewer asks her, you know, there's reports that the United States sanctions have caused the deaths of over half a million Iraqi children. And Madeleine Albright sits there with a straight face and she goes, oh, that's a difficult question, but I think it's worth it. So think about what she's saying. She's saying that she thinks it's worth murdering, murdering a hundred, half a million Iraqi children. And think to yourself, if you're you know, watching this from the United States or wherever else, as an adult, how much say do you have in the United States policy? Almost none. And so in in Iraq, how much say do you think an adult has in what the Iraqi government's policy is? Probably even less than you have. And these are half a million Iraqi children who have absolutely no say whatsoever in their government's policy, but the United States government murdered them because they didn't like what these people in power in the Iraqi government were doing. And that is absolutely disgusting. And anybody that supports any sort of institution that thinks it's okay to murder half a million children should be absolutely ashamed Obama should be ashamed Bush should be ashamed and every president before them should be ashamed as well and anybody who supported them in any way should be ashamed and it's just appalling to me and I look forward to the day when people realize that oh my god this is craziness we should have nothing to do with any of that at all and I think more and more people are starting to see that Um, but we still have a long 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 way to go And the people that have seen that, they shouldn't be quiet and just think that they're the only ones. They need to speak out and say that this is madness, this needs to stop. We shouldn't support people that are going around the world murdering innocent people. Murder is wrong. Don't support it verbally, don't support it mentally, and don't support it financially either. And uh, that's one of the things that has me so excited about Bitcoin is it gives everybody... The ability to opt out of this system of central banks in which they're able to just fund murder and this war machine that's murdering people all around the world with bitcoin people have the ability to say no you don't have my consent and i'm not going to participate and that's why i'm so excited about bitcoin as well
0: well it's a, it's a very forceful argument and i would venture to say there's almost no one in the audience who would disagree with that principle that we shouldn't be murdering children just because we dislike a government there will be psychopaths who do support that, but, but the vast majority of people are on your side, and yet the vast majority of people don't see it in that way. They still see it as a question of, well, government, yes, it does bad things. That's why we have to engage with it more and steer it in the direction that we want, and we have to vote for the right candidate. Uh, why, is it not, why is that not a, a potential solution to these problems?
1: Sometimes you'll hear people say that the ends justify the means. I think those people don't realize that the ends are the means. So whatever means you use to try to achieve some ends, that's what you wind up with. So if, you, if you're going around and kidnapping and enslaving people to try and wind up with some good ends, you don't. What you wind up with, the ends that you wind up with is kidnapping and slavery and, and murder and theft and extortion and all these horrible things. So um, uh, you know, another good way of summing it up is people say that there, there is no way to peace peace is the way and uh, you know you have to or as gandhi said you have to be the change you want to see in the world don't use violence to try to reduce the amount of violence in the world don't use violence ever violence isn't the answer voluntary human interaction leads to the greatest happiness and the greatest material wealth and the best standard of living for everyone on the entire planet and uh, if you if you disagree use with somebody else's point of view, use persuasion rather than force or violence to, to persuade them to your point of view. Certainly don't don't point a gun in their face or use the men wearing costumes with badges, calling themselves government agents to point guns at those people.
0: I think something that, that some people get hung up on is the idea that they're, they're thinking that this is some sort of proposal to a utopia where murder will never happen or, or scams or that type of thing will never happen, as opposed to a a, a difference in, in the system in which right now people believe there is an authority that has an actual right to do these things versus a potential uh, society where people don't acknowledge that right. And yes, it may happen, but it doesn't happen systemically. Is that an important distinction? And if so, how does that play out?
1: Yeah, um, in a world without states, there will still be theft and murder and bad things. And, but if you think about it, without a government to control, what could Hitler have done? What could Stalin have done? What could Mao have done? Maybe they could have killed a half a dozen people before the rest of the people around them would have locked them in a cage or or, or prevented them from doing that. But because they had control of this giant entity, they were able to murder hundreds of millions of people. And without states, that that wouldn't be happening. So um, there's there's another guy I, I really like, uh, called Derek Jay, who has some interesting YouTube videos. And he comments in one of them, he says, if Starbucks used some of their money to drop bombs, I wouldn't shop there. So why would I support the American empire? And I think that's true if if an organization is doing bad things, don't support it. And if you look around the world, lots of people are afraid of corporations, but they're not dropping bombs on people directly. Maybe they they lobby governments to go and, you know, tax people and fund them and that sort of thing, but I've never heard of Walmart or Starbucks or, you know, any of these people dropping bombs directly on, on other people. Um, so I think we have a whole lot more to be afraid of of states than, than corporations, and it's also important to keep in mind that corporations are creations of of states as well. Without the, the states, maybe corporations wouldn't exist, and certainly not in the same sense they, that they do today.
0: That's a very good point. Well, let's, let's move this to a slightly more positive territory. Um, talking about technology and how it can actually enable that. Uh, Let me put a proposition on the table and see what you think about it. Um, Technology enables the development of the idea of human freedom.
1: Technology enables the development of the idea of human freedom? Yeah. Um, If it wasn't for the internet, I think we'd have way less libertarians or voluntarists running around today. Um, It's amazing to see just how many incredibly powerful videos there are on YouTube or different websites advocating different things. if anybody hasn't seen them, there's a whole bunch of wonderful videos by a guy named Larkin Rose on YouTube. And his videos, and I was already a volunteerist when I discovered his videos, but I watched some of his videos and I realized, wow, I was still uh, harboring a lot of these crazy ideas in my mind and belief in you know authority that's not real. And one of the things that he said, he said, people getting together and writing down words on a piece of paper and calling it a law it doesn't alter morality in any way. And before he pointed that out, I, I maybe still had this link in my, my mind that somehow people getting together and writing down words on a piece of paper and calling it a law, maybe did uh, have some sort of an effect on that. And uh, obviously it doesn't. Morality exists outside of what men get together and, and write down words on a, on a piece of paper and call it a law.
0: So is there a historical progression from uh, from uh, times of out, out, outright absolute slavery, physical slavery, towards more nebulous ideas of, of wage slavery and that type of thing towards some sort of bitcoin like system where people get to choose what they do with with their money and w- what money actually is. I mean, is there is there a progression towards this, or is this just happening chaotically?
1: Um, yeah, no, I, I think there's definitely a progression. I mean if in most parts of the world today, chattel slavery doesn't, it doesn't exist any longer, and that's a huge step forward. But we still have things like the draft and, and, you know, taxes and all sorts of other things that I think, and I hope, you know, a hundred years from now, uh, people will look back on that and think, oh, wow, what were the heck were those people thinking? I'm so glad we don't have that today. Just in the same way that we look back today on chattel slavery and think, what the heck were those people thinking? I'm so glad we don't have that today. So I think we are headed in the right direction. And, Things like the Internet and Bitcoin are hugely powerful tools to help spread these ideas. And, and I think most people, once once they hear these ideas, they don't go back. And the big, the big issue we have is that we need to expose more people to these ideas. Because once you hear the idea that the draft is the moral equivalent of kidnapping and slavery, I don't think that's disputable. And it's really, really clear. If you sit down and think about it, the draft is the moral equivalent of kidnapping and slavery. And if you're opposed to kidnapping and if you're opposed to slavery, you must be opposed to the draft. And you must be opposed to those groups of people trying to impose the draft. And uh, But I think most people have never even heard the idea that the draft is the moral equivalent of kidnapping and slavery. So hopefully more websites like yours can help spread those ideas and more and more people can uh, speak out about those sorts of things.
0: I certainly hope so. But unfortunately, of course, there will be the people who argue that well, yes, of course, a draft is, is, is like slavery. That's why we got rid of it and we have a volunteer army, which amounts to the same thing because it's people who are in economically deprived circumstances who are signing up for the promise of, of, of pensions or, or, or university or whatever. Um, and, and they make the economic systemic economic argument that it's the, the system of the economy itself that forces people into it rather than people pointing a gun at your head saying to do it and saying, well, it
1: amounts to the same thing. I think it's important to distinguish being coerced by actual men with guns, being coerced by nature, and the economic system that we have today is definitely influenced a huge amount by the state, but the economic reality is that people need to work in order to be able to eat, and if you're alone in the woods, you're not being coerced by nature with the fact that you don't have food, that's just the reality of existence. But uh, Everybody would have a much, much, much higher standard of living and I don't think many people would feel compelled to join the armed services if we had a, a freer economy in which people were able to keep most of what they earn and reinvest it in businesses that, they, that actually produce wealth rather than spending all this money on, on this war machine that drops bombs on people and buildings around the world and destroys wealth rather than creates it.
0: All right, so do you want to end with a big philosophical question or talk more about Bitcoin?
1: I think they'll both wind up being tied together. So let's
0: <laughs> well, the, the big thing. philosophical question, um, <laughs> which has actually just escaped me. I had, um, <laughs> what, what were we just talking about? Um, being coerced by nature versus... Being coerced versus by, by nature, right. Um, what was the, I had a great question. Ah, yes, okay, yes, yes, okay. What is property, and how does it come into existence?
1: So, um, I've been persuaded by the homesteading argument. So I think... People own their own bodies, and they own their own energy from their own body and their own labor. So anytime that you take your labor and mix it with something that was found in the natural environment that was previously unowned, that then becomes your rightfully acquired property. And anytime you trade some rightfully acquired property or your labor with some other human being or other entity for something, that is your property. So I think you can homestead anything that was previously unowned, and you can trade for or acquire other things that were previously owned by someone else through voluntary interaction with other people. Anything? Where are you going with that question? Land, air, water? Uh, Yeah, I think land, air, and water. A river? Uh, The devil's always in the details, but uh, certainly having—certainly claiming that some entity called the state owns these things leads to a lot of pollution and a lot of fighting and a lot of wars and a lot of problems. So uh, I think there's much better ways to, uh, to... Is it possible that there are classes of objects that no one owns or can own? Yeah, I, I definitely think that there are um, such as ideas. Um, I don't think somebody can own an idea. Uh, All
0: right, um, well, let's finish up with Bitcoin then. Um, how does Bitcoin relate to what we've been talking about. How does Bitcoin enable
1: people to create a
0: world free
1: from coercion? So I'm so incredible. The the reason I got involved in Bitcoin is because of my interest in volunteerism, because I saw Bitcoin as a way that any human being anywhere on the planet, regardless of what geographical or political jurisdiction they happen to have been born into, can now do business or transact with anyone else anywhere on the planet without needing permission from anybody. And even if the powers that be in their political area say no, they still have the ability to transact in Bitcoin and for me that's just so incredibly exciting to see that sort of thing taking place. And all around the world most governments fund what they're doing, a little bit through direct taxation but mostly through inflation. And because Bitcoin has a hard limited supply, governments are no longer going to be able to fund what they're doing through inflation if the world is using Bitcoin. So I'm working hard every single day to spread Bitcoin to the, the biggest number of people everywhere. And all these people that are opposed to what states are doing, right now, today, you have an option. Start using Bitcoin. Stop using dollars, euros, or yen. Use Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the currency of peace, whereas the dollar and these other currencies are the currency of uh, violent central bankers and violent governments that like to murder people around the world. So if you're opposed to murder and violence and coercion, use Bitcoin. If you like murder and violence and coercion, keep using dollars and euros and yen.
0: You're exactly right. These pieces of paper are covered, drenched in blood. And uh, until people start really understanding that, I don't think they'll they'll have an appreciation for why we need to, to switch to a such system like this. So once again, direct people to any resources you'd like, your website, any other websites about Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, uh, Bitcoin.org is a great way to, to get started in learning about Bitcoin. But keep your Bitcoins in a wallet in which you control. Don't store your Bitcoins with some other third-party service that's holding your Bitcoin private keys. Um, If you're new to Bitcoin, that might be a little bit complicated and hard to understand, but just go ahead and use uh, electrum.org or blockchain.info or uh, the Armory is another Bitcoin wallet. And I forget what their exact URL is, but any of those would be fine. Um, Keep your Bitcoins in your own wallet. That's the most important thing. Anytime you have a chance to use Bitcoin rather than dollars or euros or yen, do it. You'll be helping make the world a more peaceful place. Excellent.
0: And your website one more time?
1: Rogerveer.com. if you want to contact me.
0: All right. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you.